Um, I wonder what it is that you like to boast in. It might um, bring back memories of watching episodes of The Apprentice where someone to camera would say that they were the best salesman, which was exactly what the previous person had said, and that they would try and boast in the kind of things um, that they've done. And I've got a wee Photoshop picture behind me, um, and I wonder if you can appreciate the significance of it. Um, the footballer there is messy, and he is holding on to a goat. Um, might seem a bit tame, might seem a bit bland, um, but in the world of arguing on Twitter as to who is the best footballer, GOAT becomes an acronym for the greatest of all time. So someone's photoshopped him to look like some sort of Renaissance painting, showing that he is the greatest of all time. If you were Messi or Ronaldo and someone puts that little goat emoji, you would be really, really happy with that. In this psalm, we see something of the opposite. Um, it's not the greatest all time of all time, unless you're talking about getting lost and wandering. Uh, over 400 times in the Bible, the analogy of sheep and shepherds is used, and it's not used in a positive way for the sheep. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 26, I will strike the shepherd and the flock will be scattered. Um, elsewhere that we all like sheep have gone astray. It seems like the one thing sheep are good for is getting lost. And the, the psalmist boasts here in verse one that the Lord is my shepherd is not about him. It's not just he's, he's owning up to his insecurities and his vulnerabilities that uh, he's just having a self-pity party, but that he's boasting in another. That's something so countercultural. cultural um, If you know any of the catechism questions, it's only the first ones that ever get quoted. And the answer to one of those is, what's my greatest hope in life and in death, or my greatest comfort? And the beginning of that answer is that I am not my own, but belong both body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the Christian's comfort is something totally different. We don't have to boast, we don't have to achieve, we don't have to make ourselves be the greatest of all time. But neither are we just wallowing in self-pity and going, oh, poor me. But rather the psalmist here boasts to have the Lord as his shepherd. Um, the Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. Or the Lord's my shepherd, what, what more could I want? What more could I need? This is a deeply, deeply personal psalm. If, if you were to go through and try and highlight all the times uh, the first person singular is used, so it's all me and my, I keep trying to do it, but every time I keep spotting another one, so I'll leave that up to you. And so there's something deeply personal about knowing the Lord as our shepherd. You see, there's times when we want to be responsible for things. I was recently in England for their Freedom Day, um, which was a bit of an anticlimax because we weren't quite sure what we were free to do. Um, free to not wear a mask in a supermarket, free to spread a virus without breaking the rules. It just seemed like a bit of an anticlimax that, that, that as having the personal responsibility wasn't really all that it lived up to be. And similarly here, as the psalmist looks to life, 
He's very, very happy in this case to look to God, to not claim things for himself. He realizes that if we were the captain of our destiny, that that ship would sink. And so he's happy to rest in his shepherd's care. And so as we go through this psalm, time and time again, the emphasis is very much going to be on the shepherd's care and comfort and not on our abilities to get things right or even on our abilities to consistently trust in him, but on his abilities to look out for us. Um, Look with me at verses two and three. Jesus, my guide. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. When Dom took us through Psalm 1, we looked at the contrast between walking in the way of the righteous and not. And here we have the psalmist declaring that this is what the good shepherd does. He leads me. He makes me lie down beside still waters. And you might think, well, well, that's an obvious thing that we'd want to do. But the language here is, is very much of some instruction that we needed. Um, a bit like I remember one time waiting at a bus stop and there was a huge argument. It was between a toddler and their parent, um, the best kind. So the toddler was in floods of tears because they did not want to get on the bus. Instead, they wanted to go home. The parent trying to explain that the bus was how they were going to get home and that it would take much, much longer if they walked. And it just didn't seem in the toddler's mind to make sense. And I'm sure it probably didn't until the toddler arrived at home. Um, But in the same thing here, he leads us in the way of righteousness. He restores our soul. Um, Elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will say, a bruised or a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not put out. A bruised reed is one that is almost snapped and would be good for nothing but sticking in the fire. A smoldering wick's when the light, the candle's already gone out and you've just got that last wee bit of flame. And what is being said there and is being said here in Jesus restoring our soul is the very thing that everyone else writes off as spent and to everyone else seems just like damaged goods. Jesus comes towards, leads us, and restores us. He guides us. And just at the end of that verse 4, he guides us for his name's sake. This is something more than just our own personal well-being. It might seem a bit of a strange statement to include, but here's how I think it functions. Um, And I think we might understand that by looking uh, at Moses' prayer to God um, in Exodus, where the, the people have rebelled and God is about to wipe them out, and he prays to God to save his people. And it's interesting what he doesn't pray for. He doesn't say that they'll sort themselves out. He doesn't try to excuse them. He doesn't try to justify things. Instead of defending their actions, he points to God's promises. He says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring to the stars of heaven and all this land I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. He quotes to God his own promise and the Lord relented from disaster that he had spoken of bringing to his people. 
So what's the slam dunk thing that uh, Moses uses there is that God's promises will prevail. He doesn't try to justify it by saying the sheep will sort themselves out, but that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He points not from, doesn't try to defend their actions, but points to God's promise. And so in this psalm, this is a great comfort to us as we are so inconsistent in our Christian lives and struggle so much and wander so often to know what's keeping us there is God's commitment for his name's sake to bring about people to his own possession, to glorify his name by saving us. So we've seen Jesus as my guide, verses 2 and 3. Look with me then at verse 4. Actually, just before we get into that, uh, this series in the, uh, in, in the Psalms, we're looking at over summer, this is the middle of almost a trilogy, a series within a series. Last week, Jacob took us through Psalm 22, and those words that will ring in our ears from Jesus on the cross of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And next week, Dom will take us through Psalm 24 where it says, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may enter in. Who is this king? It's not us, it's the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king. And so we see Jesus forsaken in Psalm 22 and triumphant in Psalm 24. And here in Psalm 23, we see him in the valley. So although this psalm is chiefly and in a deeper level about Jesus, it is also for us too that the language of peaceful pastures very quickly changes. Look with me at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me and your rod and staff, they comfort me. One of the things that makes a psalm so popular is its universal appeal. It doesn't specifically give us one kind of situation like uh, false teaching or rebellion to focus on here. And um, One of the reasons that makes it a great psalm to pray every day is that often in life we feel like we are in the valley where the enemies may be all around us, but we don't know yet. And so... Let's look at the things Jesus gives us as our comfort in the valley. And first of all, he gives us his presence. I've said before, this is a really, really personal psalm, but even still, the language changes slightly and gets that bit more personal. You see, up until now, he's been talking about the Lord's my shepherd. He makes me lie down. He leads me. Then in verse four, I will fear no evil for you are with me. He starts to address God directly. He's no longer talking about God, but talking to God. And isn't that true of our experiences when in those darker moments that we at some points actually stop talking just around and about God, but actually talking directly to him? He has his presence. Evil is not eliminated in the valley, but the fear of it is. And if this psalm is chiefly about Jesus, which I think it is, then we know that he knows what it is like to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We know what it is like for him to go through deepest darkness, for him to face death. 
And therefore, in his presence, we have a high priest who can sympathize. We have one who knows what it is like to be fearful in the valley where enemies seem all around and there doesn't seem to be anything we can do about it. We have a high priest who can sympathize with us. But presence alone is not enough. Jesus says in the Great Commission, behold, I'll be with you always, even till the end of the day. But on its own, that, that isn't enough for us. Otherwise, he's, he's just a spectator. We also have his protection. It also says in the Great Commission that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And here we, we read that your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, there's two reasons this language might be uncomfortable. One is we're not uh, used to being shepherds in that kind of community. Um, so it might seem quite heavy-handed, like sort of having the belt or something like that. Um, but the other reason it feels uncomfortable is because it is uncomfortable. Um, in Hebrews, it talks about, you know, the discipline of the Lord never, never being pleasant in the moment. And yet it's meant to guide us and keep us on the right path. There's two elements to this, the rod and the staff. The staff is what the shepherd would use for the, the sheep to keep them on track, more used to what you're seeing in the nativity plays kind of thing, but used to just keep the sheep from wandering. The staff's a bit more heavy duty. It doesn't feature in the nativity plays, and it's used to bludgeon the wolf. It's used to keep away predators. So we have both actions and the right thing for the right place. One, to keep the sheep on track, and one, to keep away the threat. And what that might look like in real life um, could be in any number of ways that God makes his word effective in our lives, whether through friends' words or sermons or readings or moments, to keep the sheep on the right track, that this is his great comfort, that there is someone looking out for him. And as we come to this language it can be quite difficult because theologians will say you should uh, look to God as perfect and then interpret people in light of that. And that's true, but it's not what we do because we look to the physical things around us and then say, well, God must be, must be like that. And so we might have some hesitancy in, under, in understanding this um, from under shepherds who may have uh, used the staff and the rod wrongly. I can think of two kind of ways that might happen. It might be that you've experienced something where they're just put down. They're not used, and in the name of unity or accessibility, don't want to make a fuss, they're left out. That we're not being guided and trained by his word anymore, and that is wonderful news for the wolves that have a feast. Or it may be that someone claiming to be an under-shepherd or a Christian gone wrong has used these heavy-handedly or in a wrong way. And that may make us more hesitant to trust in Christ's use of them. And yet whatever our personal experiences, and they, they are important, we must see Christ as the good shepherd who uses this rightly to keep us on the right track and to keep away threat. So if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Um, we'll see, we see in Christ's life the good shepherd who endures harm 
and pain and reputational damage, whose power is given up. He's not using that rod and staff, as it were, just to control the sheep, but he gave his life for them. Now, when we're looking through John's gospel, we looked at the good shepherd. And I think if we want to know Christ's comfort in the valley, we do need to know his presence with us as one who sympathizes. We do need to know his ability to protect. But I wonder if um, we might also ask the question, well, will, will he use it? That may be what the devil whispers in our ear. He might have the ability to do it, but when I've gone astray one more time, will he, will he use it? The best way I thought of um, looking at this, um, borrowing from what we, we looked at in John 10 a few weeks ago, I don't know if you've ever done any supermarket training. Um, I've not, but there always seems to be a point at which someone says, if you're, do, you know, if you're doing checkout, it doesn't matter where you are, they all say roughly the same thing. And you know, if someone comes in and they're threatening you and maybe they've got a knife, you know, don't try any heroics, just give them whatever they want. And every person doing training thinks, that's exactly what I was going to do anyway. Living wage wasn't going to be worth dying for. At the end of the day, it's not my money. If I did get injured doing some heroics, you'd probably still deduct my wages for me not finishing my shift. And so there's no connection. And so, yeah, just hand it over. But imagine now uh, a family moving over to Scotland from Pakistan uh, to build a better life for their family. They set up a wee corner shop. They plow everything into it. Uh, they don't go on holiday, not because of COVID, but because every bit of spare money goes to fix the toilet or that shelf or try to get a new sign-up outside. Their whole family life is invested in this wee business. They get told every week by someone that supermarkets exist and um, people don't really buy newspapers anymore, and that really cheers them up. But everything they have in their life has been built and can be represented by this wee shop. Now, do you think the owner responds in the same way when he sees a 12-year-old trying to pinch a Mars bar? Do you think he has the same reluctance? Of course not. There's not a chance when he spots it that that person's getting away with it. And it's the same here with Christ. He is not a hired hand. He's laid down his life for his sheep, and he doesn't do half-finished jobs. He won't just let them wander in the valley. If God has given us his own son, he will surely give us all things. We know his commitment to us as he's laid down his life for us. What makes a good shepherd good? That he'll lose none of what the Father has given me. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And just in case you didn't get it, that no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. What makes the good shepherd good is his ability to keep us. That none of what the Father has given him, that might be another way of saying, um, like we looked at earlier, the... Um, the, the for his name's sake, that this is part of a bigger plan. So to know Jesus' comfort in the valley, we need to know his presence and protection. And also that he is the good shepherd who has laid down his life for his sheep. He will use that to keep us. 
And then look with me at verse 5 as we, the image changes and we see Jesus as my host. Uh, sorry, I'm in Psalm 22. That's why the verse looks slightly different to me. Um, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup, it overflows. Here we see the image change from being in a valley to being in a banquet. As the psalmist looks forward to eternal joy with God, he sees, and we can see, that Jesus who has prepared our table before me. This journey is something more than survival. There is joy and celebration. The reason the psalmist can look to this is that he knows that there is the good shepherd and there is eternal security, that it is worth looking forward to this great feast. Um, you might be a bit confused by the bit where it says, in the presence of my enemies. And the best thing I could think of with this is it's a bit like, I'm trying to think what the character is in Back to the Future. I think it's something like Biff, the bully right at the start, that starts off really aggressive, but by the end of it, spoilers if you've not seen it, when they change time, ends up uh, be, being a servant and cleaning the car at the end and saying, oh, is that right, uh, Marty, is that right, Mr. McFly? And it's almost this transformation that the evil that was in the valley and the enemy that was in the valley now is sitting before me. And as we enjoy this feast, there's nothing they can do. It's as if they've been muted. They've been cancelled out. It's great celebration. My cup it overflows, my, my head anointed with oil. Now the threat that once was is no longer there. and no longer able to be the threat it used to be. So we see Jesus as my host. And as we look to verse 6, in many ways it acts as a summary for the whole psalm. Let me find it again. Um, Surely goodness and mercy or loving kindness in some of your translations shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Uh, one preacher put it well when he said, God's goodness and God's mercy are like his sheepdogs. This language of follow is much more the language of pursue and hunt. It's not that they're sort of twaddling along behind us like ducks, but rather they are, they are pursuing us. That wherever we go, there is God's goodness and there is God's mercy. And it summarizes everything that's come before. And I think is one of the reasons why the psalm's so often used at funerals. Because in the rearview mirror, it's much clearer to see that we can say his goodness and mercy has followed this person all the days of their lives. And as I say, it's much easier to see in the rearview mirror. I wonder if you've ever seen the, the film Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's a comedy where someone takes a day off school and does lots of crazy stuff. Uh, smashes a Ferrari, that kind of thing, uh, is a comedy. And, and some of you might be film buffs and know what technique this is, but there's a technique where it looks at every point as if he's just about to be caught. So he just leaves the restaurant before someone arrives. His dad sees him dancing in a, in a parade, but he's just too far away to be recognized. And then the director almost teases you towards the end that, that he goes across his dad's car, but it's his back that goes across the windscreen, not his face, so he doesn't, doesn't see him. Now, if you see it as a film, you know it's, it's obviously he's not going to get caught. It's not Ferris Bueller's morning off and afternoon in detention. But that is what it can seem 
But in the time, it seems so perilous. And that's what happens here with God's goodness and God's mercy. In the moments, it seems so perilous. But then when we look back, clouded vision now, clearer later, we see that there his goodness and mercy were all along, keeping us from disaster, that we were, we were hunted by his mercy. It's, it's almost like the opposite of a horror film. Hunted and it's coming and it's coming. And instead of it being something terrifying, it is his goodness and his mercy. And so to close in this, um, one thing I would want us to know, as we see Christ as our, our shepherd and our host and our protection, whatever that looks like for you at this point in time, the emphasis of this psalm doesn't just leave us with wanting um, to say, I'll, I'll do a bit better, I'll trust better next time. But as we lean in to know our shepherd's care, one theologian put it and said it like this, faith is nothing a baby does in their mother's arms. And for us, this psalm functions like this, that the good shepherd cares for us. And so when we hear his voice, let's not harden our heart. When we see his goodness and mercy, let's praise him for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son for us to lay down his life, to give up his authority that we might be your children. And Father, so often we feel weak and vulnerable, so often we stray. And yet I pray we would know the shepherd's care today. Would you make us aware of your love for us and your guiding of us by whatever means you deem fit, Lord, would we know more and more your care and love for us. We thank you that you don't do any half-finished projects, that what you start, you finish, that you won't um, get get fed up with us, Lord, but you will keep us and hold us fast. In your name I pray. Amen. Um, we're going to sing now a song that has a boast like the, the start of this psalm, that yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's sing together.